welcome to episode two of Charting the Territories. Episode one apparently was so successful that they decided not to cancel us right off the bat. So they're giving us uh, an extended run. Uh, my name is Al Getz, and with me, as always, he has yet to miss an episode of this podcast, is John Boucher. How's it going, John? How, how are you, Al? It's good to hear from you on this, this, this balmy, sticky, sweaty July evening. Uh, I'm well. Thank you for congratulating me for making it back. Yeah, you're you're a trooper, and this is uh this is the second episode of Charting the Territories. And as a perhaps interesting anecdote for our listeners, we are actually recording this the night before episode one is actually released. Uh, we fil- we recorded episode one uh, several weeks ahead of time in order to get things ready to go, uh, and we had a, a little delay in getting it out there, so it came out uh, on Friday, July 10th, and we're actually recording this on Thursday, July 9th. So uh, I say they the episode was so successful they gave us another go, but who knows if that actually will be the case or not. But we've got things going now, and the plan is to have monthly episodes and looking to release them on the fourth week of each month, either the fourth Thursday or the fourth Friday. And please don't ask me what that means when the first of the month is on a Friday, because that will screw everything up. Um, but uh, fourth week of each month, uh, you are going to be uh, wowed and amazed by John and I discussing uh, the territorial era, in particular, the McGurk slash Watts territory. And this month, we're going to discuss the content that was released on our blog, which can be found at chartingtheterritories.com uh, for the month of July. In particular, we're going to focus on July 1976 in the McGurk Wrestling Territory, but we'll also touch on July 1980 and follow up with what we talked about last month on the podcast, go back to 1972, and also look at the third quarter of 1961. But we also have a new feature uh, we're already making additions to the uh, table of contents for episode two. And John, tell uh, our listeners about the new, very exciting feature. What we also want to do, we're going to we're going to answer some of our own questions from last month's podcast, and hopefully provide some some follow up. This will be a a monthly, a regular feature, as we are we are not perfect. No, 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 and we will make mistakes from time to time. So we're going to do our best to uh, correct those mistakes when warranted, hopefully, you know, on a monthly basis. Yeah, we're going to correct ourselves if need be and answer questions. And sometimes in the course of our discussion, you know, we ask uh, each other questions and we don't have necessarily time to Google it right then and there, but we will follow up the following month. And that's one of the things we're doing. Uh, we're also going to answer questions from listeners. So uh, follow us on Twitter. Uh, my handle is at Al Getz Wrestling, that's L-G-E-T-Z Wrestling, and John Boucher is at J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. Uh, nice job. Ask us some questions, and uh, if we if we like the question and feel like it's worth our valuable time, we will answer it. Um, but before we get into July of 1976, do want to briefly give a rundown of what Charting the Territories is about. It's a data-driven look at pro wrestling in the territorial era, with a primary focus on the McGurk-Watts territory uh, between the late 50s and the mid-80s. Uh, In addition to looking to get records of all the house shows, we have uh, come up with a couple of statistics that quantify wrestlers' achievements in a way that stats used in other sports can't capture and that take into account the unique nature of pro wrestling. So you're going to hear us refer to two statistics um, 
on this podcast, and you'll also see them on the blog at chartingtheterritories.com. The first is a SPOT rating, and SPOT stands for Statistical Position Over Time. It measures a wrestler's average position, or SPOT, on the cards. If a wrestler is always in main events or near the top of the card, they're going to have a higher SPOT rating than someone who generally wrestles in the middle of the card or in the opening matches. And we look at SPOT as a number between 0 and 1, and it's expressed as a two-digit decimal. A SPOT rating of 1.00 means the wrestler was in the main event of every show they were advertised on in a given time period. The other statistic is a feud score, and feud stands for frequent encounters using data, and it's used to measure the intensity of a feud based on how many times a specific match occurs and and the breadth of of when it occurs. And this expresses a whole energy integer, pardon me, and what we see is that a feud score of 25 or higher means that it's a feud and probably has a TV angle uh, behind it. And a feud score of 40 or higher means it's a major feud with multiple matches happening all around the loop, well, usually with, with big stipulations involved in some of the rematches. Uh, the highest possible score varies, but anything approaching a feud score of 100 is about as high as we're going to see. So that are the spot statistic and the feud statistic. And we're going to now dig into July of 1976, which was actually uh, interesting because it is the first supercard in the history of the McGurk-Watts era. And uh, one of the things as I was putting this together, John, I was trying to figure out how do we actually define a supercard? And I think um, in the early days of wrestling, you know, up up through the... uh, first golden age of television, there were major arena shows in cities such as Chicago, uh, some of the most famous matches and title matches of the, uh, you know, first half of the 20th century took place in uh, some of these major cities at, at outdoor arenas. But as uh, as we get into the territorial era in the 50s and 60s, most of the territories are running uh, their same venues on a weekly basis, perhaps. Occasionally, they're running, in the summertime, they're running an outdoor venue. And perhaps when they bring in the world champion or uh, Haystack Calhoun and, and some special attractions, they'll run a loaded show. But but to me, a super card is something that is uh, promoted as a you know, unique standalone event and not just a particularly loaded, you know, version of your weekly house show, but something that that is really given must see status. Yeah, I, you know, just growing up, you know, in the in the in the New York territory, as they say, I always looked at these shows as, you know, there's certain certain boxes you have to check as you go down the card, like you need to, you know, it should, you know, you'd have the, the blow off match of the hottest main event feud in the territory for whatever period it is you run those shows if it's the, if you run them yearly biggest one of the year quarterly biggest one of the quarter um preferably you want to have more than one hot feud on the match you know a, a cool stipulation match that you don't see all the time or that you know the the two principals involved have not been in, involved in together yet or separately even better um you need attractions like you need an andre or like a, a haystacks like you said um, you can bring in guys from outside the territory um, as attractions, uh, preferably get them involved somehow, you know, in a TV angle or something with one of your guys. Um, if not, it's a standalone cold match is fine. Uh, women's match, midget match, maybe a battle royal, depending on the territory. That's that's to me how I look at how I look at them, the super cards from my WWF bias, I guess. 
Yeah, so w- what we did is John and I compiled a list of uh, supercards. This is probably not comprehensive. And again, uh, listeners who uh, have any noticeable omissions that we make, feel free to let us know, and we will uh, get to it in next month's mailbag. But um, starting from 1969 and moving forward, we put together a list of uh, several of these supercards. And, and John, since you have uh, the New York uh Information. Let's let's continue along that <laughs> route. Let's talk about three big supercards that were run in uh, two uh, rundown baseball stadiums. Well, one of them one of them is is even more rundown now, <laughs> yeah. um, and the other uh, no longer exists. Yes. Uh, first one we're talking to talk about is uh, Fenway Park, June twenty eighth, nineteen sixty nine. Um, I have the program from this match. I can I can pull this and scan this if anybody wants to see it actually. And the, the cover hails this as the greatest wrestling program of all time. And the, the back cover has a nice little photo of promoter Abe Ford's head on it and a little cartoon body hitting a home run out of Fenway Park. Um, and this is a really interesting card, and there's a lot to consider when you critique it. Notice I say critique, not criticize. Um, and you're, you're sort of wondering whether this is a case of having been able to secure this stadium venue uh rather than having a card and needing to uh find a big room for it uh it's like it, the undercard is not remarkable ricky sexton duke savage danucci albano Pugliese, cluna george Steele, victor rivera which is not bad uh six woman tag match three out of five falls a six-man midget match, also three out of five all ten-man battle royal. Uh, Sheik versus Bulldog, Brown Cage, and Bruno Killer Kowalski in a stretcher match. Um, now, on the, on the surface, aside from the semi-main and the main, doesn't look that different from your standard MSG or Boston Garden show of that of that era. Um, you know, Steele and Rivera. Uh, a lot of times when we think about, or when I think about those guys, I think about them in the late '70s. And they're not at the top of their game, really. But this is late 60s, so then these guys can still put on a fairly decent match. Um, and looking at like the women's tag match and the midget tag match, when you look at that stuff, you know, and even the Battle Royal, you have to look at that through the eyes of a, a wrestling fan from 1969, not through our, our jaded smart fan 2020 wrestling twitter eyes like that that sort of stuff was seemed exciting to read about in the magazines and you didn't get to see it regularly there are special attractions usually every six months or a year um i mean yeah a, a three out of five balls midget tag match sounds like cruel and unusual punishment now i i, I get it but it's it was probably looked at differently in 1969 um the cage match is, is especially interesting to me because the first off the wwf had just had uh, the very first cage match in their history in January of 69. It was Sheik Bruno at the Philadelphia Arena. Um, but Brower had just been back in the territory for a few months. Uh, he's still doing weekly shots in Toronto for Tunney, where he's a babyface, oddly enough. Um, and he and the Sheik had a few matches in Toronto, but there was no real hot feud to speak of. Um, Brower was mostly tagging with Whipper Billy Watson up there. Um, and he's a heel in the WWF. Um, and the last time fans have seen the Sheik in Boston was at the Boston Garden against Bruno, uh, four matches four matches earlier in the year, two cage matches. So I've always wondered about this match. Um, 
specifically the, the promotion and the presentation, like how was it just a cold heel versus heel cage match or did they shoot an angle on local TV? Um, could they have filmed this and use it on Maple Leaf Wrestling TV? I don't know. It's just very, very curious to me. And, and again, Brower and the Sheik in 1969 could probably still put on a, a decent match. So I'd actually be interested in, in seeing that. And Sheik, Sheik would win this one. Uh, and Kowalski and San Martino, they would feud on and off from the early 60s on to the mid-70s, even into the late 70s, if you can consider uh, the Executioner 1 feuds. Uh, and they'd recently met at the Boston Garden, their last match being a no contest in April and also having a Texas death match that Kowalski won, which is also very curious to me. I don't know how the actual finish of that match went or how you would work a challenger beating Bruno San Martino in a Texas death match. Um, regardless, this is probably a great ball, a great brawl. Um, and, and the finish is really fun in the way. It's actually an article written in the Boston Globe about this match by a 24-year-old Peter Gamitz, and he describes the two referees, Tom, McNeil, Tom McNeely, John Stanley, carrying Kowalski out on the stretcher, the match presumed to be over, and the hysterical fans throwing beer at Kowalski. And he rolls off the stretcher, apparently re-energized from the beer, makes his way back to the ring where San Martino hits him with the chair, and that's with that iconic photo of San Martino nailing Killer Kowalski, which is from... Uh, you see the crowd in the background cheering on Bruno. So the beer, uh, so Bruno. the beer was like spinach to Kowalski. Yes, yes, yes. Love it. Yes, yep. Um, according to Peter Gaiman, uh, and yeah, and Boston's love Bruno. Bruno loved Boston, and you hear all we hear the old timers talk about how Bruno was so loved by the Italians in Boston that restaurants in the North End would stay open late just in case he came in for a meal. Uh, and it's interesting, just for reference, the very next day, Maple Leaf Gardens. Uh, 15,000 in attendance. The Sheik defeats Gene Kaniski in two minutes. And Bruno's in the semi-main where he defeats Baron Cicluna. Uh, Bulldog Brower's in a tag match. That's interesting. And the day after that, June 30th at MSG, Bruno defeats George Steele in the main. Kowalski goes to a draw with his new And they, they run the same three out, of fall, three out of five fall midget tag match they did in Fenway. The attendance in the garden on June 30th 5,527, the lowest attendance at the Garden in more than 25 years. Um, they had to actually had a show scheduled for July that they just straight up canceled. Um, should be noted that there's some weird stuff going on with the television at the time, like they were on NJU, primarily a Spanish station, a little bit of English programming, mostly Spanish, though. And the station manager decided to move Wrestling from Washington, the, the flagship show that they had on Saturday nights. Uh, at eight o'clock to Wednesday afternoon at five ten, <laughs> right after the news. So that could not have helped matters for the attendance. But not to worry. In August, they they start airing wrestling from Philadelphia, which is in color, and it's on Saturday nights at eight. And attendance business goes back up, baby. Business goes back up. All right. So that was 1969 in Fenway. And then uh, from there, we get to the first uh, showdown at Shea a few years later. Yep, it's a 72 and a, a rainy, rainy night at Shea Stadium. Uh, undercard, midget tag, of course. Uh, Moolah versus Debbie Johnson for the women's belt. Chuck O'Connor, little Big John Stud in his rookie year versus the masked Olympico, El Olympico. 
uh, Jack Briscoe versus Mr. Fuji also. And this is one I have a morbid curiosity about. Uh, Mr. Fuji is Mr. Fuji, I know. But he was still moving around in 72, taking that big big old butt bump that he would do. And a, a pre-NWA world champ, Jack Briscoe, I, I, would, I would be into seeing this match, uh, honestly. And the Chief J. Strongbow, Sonny King versus the Spoiler and Captain Lou Albano. Lasted under five minutes, which is probably a good thing. Uh, Ernie Ladd and Gorilla Monsoon go to a draw, uh, but the ref awards the match to Gorilla, even going to a time on the draw, which is like a finish that they used to do at the Garden a lot. I used to love those little finishes where the ref would award a draw to someone. Um, if I'm remembering correctly, Ladd had just finished the, done the loop, Northeast loop, uh, against Pedro, wrestling him in MSG early in the month. So even if Gorilla and him weren't in the midst of a, like a blood, blood feud, Lad was still hot. Lad was always hot. And the Gorilla Monsoon is a, per, a perennial Northeast favorite. So you don't even really have to have like a high angle. You can just have Ernie Lad cut a promo on TV and you're good. Um, and they have uh, Tanaka versus George Steele, uh, which uh, heel versus heel match, uh, but they cancel that probably because of time constraints. They have Pedro and Bruno in a very unusual babyface, babyface match. Um, and Arezzi, John Arezzi has talked about the show and specifically about this match a few times on his show and 605. So I would search those shows out to get a really detailed glimpse uh, into the overall feelings about that card and match um, and the backstory to it. But anyway, it's, it's very rant, very damp, very drizzly that night, last day of September. Um, the match ends up going 65 minutes, announced to 75. George Steele doesn't run in, but stopped. Uh, the match probably looked fantastic on paper, but overall not well received. Um, file this one under better in theory than practice, and maybe not even that good of an idea in theory. They're hoping to draw 40,000, but with the weather affecting the walk-up, they end up doing 22.5, which is basically an MSG sellout, but had to have been a disappointing gate. Um, you know, and then in June 25th, 76, they have another one at Shea, which uh, includes the closed circuit broadcasts, Ali Inoki, there's Bruno, Stan Hansen, and Andre, and Chuck Webner. Um, and the promotion for the Andre-Chuck Webner match was great. I love the way they promoted it with the comparing hand sizes. The match only goes like seven, eight minutes, which is perfect. Um the match is actually on tape, and my favorite part is probably the brawling between Weapner's cornerman and the seconds and Andre's guys and the random people at ringside. It looks to me like more of a real fight than the actual boxing match. Um, and because it's on tape, it's fairly safe bet that they have the, the whole card, including uh, the main event and the return of Bruno. Uh, you know, this is, this is Bruno's first match back after Hanson dropped him on his head uh, in April. They rush him back into the ring after, after two months. Uh, and it's, it's a quick, quick match, um, like 10 to 15 minutes as it should have been, because you don't want Bruno to get legitimately killed. They have Bruno bust Hanson open. Hanson runs out and escapes into the dugout. Uh, so Bruno gets the count out victory. More importantly, he doesn't get killed by Stan Hanson. Uh, then they go to the Ali and Oki fight, uh, which because of the, the time difference actually took place on June 26th. Uh, 
and we'll go more into that fight a little later. And Al, did you want to talk about uh, we have NWA Hollywood? Yeah, we're going from the East Coast uh, all the way to the West Coast. August 27th, 1971, uh, in Los Angeles at Memorial Coliseum, uh, we've got a pretty loaded card. Mula, Ripper Collins, uh, Peter Maivia, Jose Lothario. Uh, the top three matches are The Sheik versus Bobo Brazil. And I have a feeling we're going to see The Sheik on a lot of these because he was one of the big national uh, magazine stars. Um, but Sheik versus Bobo. And then second from the top is Masa Saito and Kenji Shibuya against Black Gordman and Goliath. And the main event, Fred Blassie against John Tolis. And this drew 25,847. And in looking at other L.A. Uh, attendance records, this, it looks like they broke the record for L.A. at the time, uh, which would the previous record would have been back in 1952, a show that had Luthez defending against Baron Michelle Leon, plus Danny McShane and the Sharp Brothers, among others. That one drew 25,300 or so. So this one, according to the attendance figures, and who knows if these are real or not, um, but generally speaking, well, actually, California, um, because of the commission, I think they had to. Um, all the newspapers always listed attendance numbers, and I think they had to be, you know, legit. So 25,847. Um, now moving back towards the middle of the country, we go to the AWA. They ran Comiskey Park in 1970 with the Vashon brothers of Mad Dog and Butcher against Dick the Bruiser and the Crusher. Uh, Vern versus Baron Von Raschke plus Dr. X, who there was Dick Byer, Ernie Ladd, and more. Uh, then a couple of years after that, they ran Soldier Field, and this was uh, Dick the Bruiser and Crusher again in the main event against the Black Jacks, Mulligan and Lanza. Vern versus Ivan Koloff um, plus Bachwinkle and Stevens, Dusty versus Wahoo, um, which is uh, one of those bring in two national stars from outside of the territory um, uh, boxes that you had said need to be on a supercard. You need to have those outside names. Um, Comiskey Park was run again in 1974, and this one had Vern against Billy Robinson and uh, Dick the Bruiser teaming with Bobo Brazil against uh, the team of The Sheik and Bobby Heenan. Uh, which just sounds like such a, a glorious team uh, of, you know, two people that have nothing in common at all, except they know how to bleed. Um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, and they would run Comiskey again in August of 76. But the first two shows uh, at Comiskey each drew over 20,000. Soldier Field was a little bit of a disappointment. 12,000 fans at Soldier Field. Uh, then we're going to take a look at Cleveland, because we all know Cleveland rocks. Going to Municipal Stadium in Cleveland, The Mistake by the Lake, August 12th, 1972. Uh, the Super Bowl of Wrestling for the, the short-lived Pedro Martinez, Johnny Powers promotion. Uh, the main events here were uh, actually every every match on this card was advertised as a championship match or part of a championship tournament. Uh, main events, Johnny Powers versus Johnny Valentine for their North American title. Abdul the Butcher versus Ernie Ladd for the Brass Knucks Championship. Mula Vicky Williams women's title match. Uh, Chief White Owl Wahoo McDaniel versus the Fargo Brothers, featuring a, a young Johnny Valentine as Johnny Fargo for the tag title. Bobo Brazil, Killer Brooks, U.S. title. Um, I think I have a few other people scheduled. George Steele, Wild Bull Curry, Cowboy Bob Ellis, who ended up not appearing on the card for whatever reason. Um, and they have a total of like 50, 50 guys and women on this card. It's a huge, huge card. They've got three rings set up, wrestling happening happening simultaneously. All three rings. This card is really 
something else, man. Um, but you, I can, you can totally see reading about this in, in the newspaper or wrestling review and being, being wowed by it. And the way it's promoted makes it seem absolutely fantastic. Like an article from a local paper says that they expected an attendance of 80,000 wrestling fans basing this number on the half a million viewers that they watch that watch their weekly show in Ohio and Pennsylvania and capacity crowds at the Cleveland arena, which just for reference is usual capacity of 11,000. Um, quoting directly from the article, this is great. Uh, Using the concept of the Colosseums of the ancients, there will be three wrestling rings going at the same time. There will be a parade of champions and flags of 15 nations. In addition, the fans will see heralding trumpets and rolling field drums accompanied by toga-clad Oh, slave girls. Oh, my. Uh, there will also be thundering chariots with matched teams of horses. These chariots were brought in from the motion picture of Ben-Hur, which is released in 1959. Uh, so far, ticket response has been beyond expectations, which could result in an annual Super Bowl spectacular for Cleveland. And wow. Listen to that. It sounds fantastic. Was Gorilla Monsoon wearing a toga? <laughs> I know. This is a... Uh, this is a super card. It's got, um, it's got that, that it. WrestleMania at, uh, in Atlantic City vibe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, 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 they had planned for this to go three and a half hours. We don't have the results of the times for all the matches, but I'd, I'd be really curious about the actual runtime of the show, which started, I think, at 2 p.m. And again, we're presented with the problem of something sounding great in theory, but a little iffy in practice. Um, you need the three rings, 50 wrestlers, every match, a championship match, the trumpets, the slave girls, the chariots. And the problem with a card like this, I think, is you find is like, what do you do next? Like, what do you do next year or whenever you run the next supercard? Well, I, um, you know, I, a part of me thinks that the idea that these are, like I said, these are almost standalone events outside of, quote unquote, canon, um, hmm. th- th- that they're not necessarily shooting an angle to get you to the next regular house show at the venue. I mean, that would be nice uh, to do. But I, I think the idea they're selling this as a special, you know, one, you know, almost like a, a spot show that comes to a small town and is the biggest thing to hit the town all year. This is just like a, a very special thing that, you know, if you miss it, you miss it. It's not miss, like yeah. you can just catch up with the angles the following week. This is, this gotcha. is, you know, yeah, this yeah. is larger than life. And speaking of larger than life, that sort of segues into a big event that happened uh, that you referred to earlier that happened just a couple of weeks before July, uh, 1976. And that's June 26th. 1976 in Japan, um, but here in the U.S., it actually was viewed the night before on the 25th. Uh, this was Muhammad Ali and Antonio Inoki. Uh, the live event happened at Budokan Hall, and it drew 14,000, but there were closed-circuit uh, showings throughout the U.S. Uh, I believe altogether the estimates are about 242,000 people uh, paid for these closed circuits, but that includes... Um, places like Shea, where there was also a pretty much a full card aside from that. But what a lot of the venues did, and I know in the McGurk territory, they I don't believe they ran their regular house shows on on this night, which was a Friday night. But in Shreveport and Monroe, they did have closed circuit airings. And what they did here was they showed four matches from Atlanta, um, which included Jack Briscoe versus Dory Funk Jr. and also Bill Watts versus Dick Slater. And in the local promotion in Shreveport and Monroe, a big selling point was that they could see Bill Watts, um, uh, who, of yeah. course, was a big star in the territory and was working out of the area at the time. So the idea was you could see Watts. And then they showed Andre versus Wepner from Shea. And then they showed Ali Inoki. 
So that you know that's that's a pretty full night, and uh, they yeah. did this all throughout the country. I think in in some cities the the presentation might have been different. They might have uh, shown had some local matches and then shown just. Andre versus Weppner and Ali Anoki. Uh, but, uh, I mean, the amount of the, the logistical work to not just have a closed circuit, but to have closed circuit from three venues um, all airing and, in, in, you know, at the, at the, you know, one after the other in succession is, is pretty fascinating. Uh, particularly given technology in 1976. So uh, they pulled it off. Obviously, as we know, the match was not very exciting. Uh, although if people had been educated to MMA, uh, they p- perhaps could have reacted differently. Because a lot of UFC fights look like, uh, you know, the, those stalemate chess matches, but uh, knowledgeable fans are into it. But this one, you know, was sort of a dud. It wasn't what people were expecting. But that brings us now to... July 1976 in the McGurk Territory, and they run their first event at the Louisiana Superdome, which is now known as the Mercedes-Benz Superdome. Um, But the Superdome broke ground in 1971 and opened on August 3rd, 1975. The Saints' first regular season game in the Dome was on September 28th. 1975, and it was a 21-0 loss to the Bengals, which sort of set the tone for the Saints in the Superdome <laughs> for about the next 25 years or so until they were able to turn a, a corner. But I happened to stumble across an article um, talking about the Superdome shortly before its opening, and there was some really interesting stuff in there, John. Yeah, oh my God, this is like an insane, insane project when you read about like the facts and the details behind it. Um like total project budget was a hundred and sixty three million dollars. Uh, total land acre area of fifty two acres, uh, which is half the size of Vatican City. I looked up. Uh, two hundred seventy five feet high diameter of the dome, six hundred eighty feet across, clear span, a hundred and sixty nine thousand cubic yards of concrete, twenty thousand tons of structural steel. 9,000 tons of air conditioning materials, 52 meeting rooms, 88 restrooms. But what I really want to know is the amount of toilets and urinals per restroom. That's the number that I want to see. Uh, 64 private box suites. Well, parking uh, on our sister podcast, Charting the Restrooms, we will cover that <laughs> in a future episode. But you mentioned the total cost was $163 million. Um, in today's numbers, that's a little over eight hundred million, uh, maybe maybe even closer to nine. Um, and when you look at the costs that we hear today for some of the from some of these similar stadiums, they're just above a billion. So it's in that ballpark. But also at the time, this was only the really the second one of its kind in the U.S. that I'm aware of. The first one was the Astrodome, which opened in the '60s. Um, but this was really the second one. And among the data, uh, there. Were, there were 400 miles of interior electrical wiring. And upon opening, just to keep it going, it cost $38,000 a day, which in today's dollars is about 200000 32 escalators, Al. 32 escalators. I, and I, I think over the course of when I went there for WrestleMania 30, I think I uh, went up and down at least half of those trying yeah. to get to my seats. I had floor seats. And there you had to get a very special, you had to go a very special way to get to the floor seats. Uh, it was very difficult. And once I finally found how to get down there, I was informed that I was supposed to have gotten a special wristband at the door to allow me okay. floor access. So oh, I had to go no. back up 
all all of these escalators to get the wristband to go back down different escalators to get to my seat. Well, the most shocking stat from this, aside from the bathroom stat, was uh, the the elevators, 10 elevators, but only one freight elevator. It sounds like a delivery person's nightmare. That's the one freight elevator for this huge, huge building. Yeah, that that's interesting. Unless unless they had you know loading docks on various levels uh, uh, that you could get into. Uh, you know, if you've ever been you know behind the scenes of any of these large venues, there are so many catacombs and hallways and secret yeah. passageways that perhaps there were other ways of getting things to uh, to where they needed to go. But McGurk and Watts ran uh, on, in July 1976, and when you look at the top two matches. The angle, they're, they're both play off of one angle that dates back uh, six, seven months earlier. So what I'm wondering is, was this the plan all along? Were they planning to build, you know, starting in December to get to the Dome show in the summer? You know, prior to this point, when, when territories were just running their weekly venues, aside from your, you know, couple of times a year when you have the world champ or in Amarillo, they had like the, the anniversary weekend in Florida, they had the Gasparilla spectaculars in February, which is some sort of pirate thing that happens in Tampa, but it leads to them loading up the cards for a few weeks, every February. Um, generally speaking, feuds run as long as they draw in each town. And while you've got angles on TV to set them up, um, at each house show around the loop, a lot of times, if a few draws well in that town, they'll run a, a screwy finish to build to a rematch with stipulations. And sometimes if it doesn't draw well, they might just, you know, have the face over clean and move on and try something new the next week. But in this case, to sort of have these big angles peaking at the dome, I think they they had to have planned this in advance. And and the storyline is in December 1975, Terry Funk comes in for a a TV appearance. uh, And this is before he wins the world title. So it's either late November or early December of 1975. uh, And Bill Watts beats him clean on TV. And shortly thereafter, Terry Funk wins the world heavyweight title. And so, of course, you'd think it would be a natural that Terry would come in and defend it against Watts. But no, Terry Funk mm-hmm. is having none of that. He and his brother decide to put bounties out not only on Bill Watts, but also on Dick Murdoch. And they, Terry, in fact, says he refuses to defend the title against Bill Watts. Now, there is one possible exception. There is an ad for a house show in Lafayette, Louisiana on uh, January 30th where Watts is advertised as getting a shot at Funk. So I don't know the timing of when this bounty angle or when Funk, you know, decided he didn't want to face Watts was, but it's possible that match happened before this angle aired in that market, or perhaps Uh, it was the impetus for that angle. Funk has bounties out on Watts and Murdoch. So let's talk about Watts. So what was Watts doing to bide time in the first six months of 76? I mean, Watts was just basically spending this time Fending off all the Funk's bounty hunters, mostly top heels from within the McGurk territory, but occasionally outsiders and holding on to the North American title. Uh, Watts defeated former world champ Harley Race on July 12th in Tulsa and July 13th in Shreveport. And that was the that was the final hurdle in his path to finally get the shot at Funk at the Superdome. 
Yeah, that, and that Superdome date was July 17th. So that's, uh, that, and that was a Saturday. Uh, Tulsa was a Monday. Shreveport was a, a Tuesday. So the idea is these are the last hurdles. So the second bout, uh, based off the same angle, as I mentioned, the Funks put a bounty on Watts and also on Dick Murdoch. And the bounty on Murdoch was collected by killer Carl Cox and his cronies, uh, who at the time was Ken Patera, uh, their manager, Buck Robley, and their associate, Bob Sweetan. Uh, but they attacked Murdoch in May, and they blinded him by throwing ink in his eyes, and they collected the bounty from the Funks. Uh, Murdoch uh, takes some time off, uh, although in actuality he's wrestling in Japan. Um, and when he comes back, he's coming back early against doctor's orders. And what they do on the house shows, it's really interesting, and we can actually see it in the spot ratings, but they're put him lower on the card on purpose uh, with the idea he has to work his way back up yeah. uh, to, to into the main events. And, and so they ran a final angle where Cox grabbed a ringside photographer's flash camera and pointed it uh, at Murdoch and shot it repeatedly so that the lights from the flash aggravate the, uh, the very sensitive eyes of the recovering Dick Murdoch. And this, of course, builds up to a stipulation match uh, known as the Jim Bowie death match. Jim Bowie. Jim Bowie death match. Jim Bowie, 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 Bowie Not the David Bowie death match, but the Jim Bowie death match. So, John, <laughs> tell us about one of the most fascinating men to have never been a professional wrestler. Um, although if he was a wrestler, it would have been, okay, yeah. So he's kind of like Don Fargo. Okay, cool. But uh, uh, yeah, yeah, taken outside <laughs> of the context of wrestling, he led a very fascinating life. And And do we understand why... In particular, they named this match and explain what the stipulations are, but uh, why they named it uh, after Jim Bowie. Yeah, basically, you know, Jim Bowie is a, a legendary 19th century pioneer figure, land speculator, soldier, hero of the Alamo. Um, first becomes well-known, 1820s, feuding with a local sheriff who shot at him because of a, a, a also a bank dispute of some sort. Uh there was a, after the confrontation, Bowie resolved to always carry his knife with him. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of debate about who actually invented the Bowie knife. Some people attribute it to other noted knife makers of the time. Um, his brother, named Resin, claimed to have invented it at one point. Other, other scholars have maintained this is an unnamed blacksmith. who was the one who invented it. Bowie just saw it and said, okay, that looks great. I'll take that one. Uh, and there was James Black, who tweaks it into what is referred to as an Arkansas toothpick which sounds like something Danny McShane would carry in his tights. Hey, uh, and a couple years later, this legendary battle referred to as the sandbar fight, where Bowie gets shot in the hip, after which he inexplicably charges at his adversary with his knife out, whereupon the shooter takes his empty pistol and wails Bowie across the head with it. The adversary then draws his sword cane, which sounds like a hell of a weapon, and impales Bowie. Uh, Bowie, rather. The adversary then places his foot on Bowie's chest and leans over in order to remove the sword cane from Bowie's body, and Bowie pulls him down and disembowels the man with his knife, killing him instantly. Uh, Bowie is shot and stabbed again by another assailant. Finally, a doctor gets him, carries him away, the sword cane protruding from his body, and he's nursed back to hell. Uh, I, th I think the doctor, the, so this is basically a fight between two factions. I believe the person that carried him away was from the other side. Uh, when all this was over and done with and everyone decided that the fight was done, a member of the other, you know, warring faction was the one carrying Bowie. And, and apparently Bowie said to him, uh, you know, I, I think the manner in which you attacked me while I was down was very unprofessional. 
or something to that effect, which is just <laughs> crazy. But and as you mentioned briefly, he also was uh, there at the Battle of the Alamo. And it's really yep. a shame because all he was doing, he was trying to find the basement and he got caught up in this whole big mess. <laughs> and it's a, it's a great story, but that has nothing to do with this match. Um, but a, a few weeks ago, uh, the Booking the Territory podcast guys discussed some of this uh, on their Patreon show. If you're listening to this, you most likely already listened to the old DTT pod, but if you don't, add this to your rotation, please. They do a ton of Patreon content too, so that's very much worth it also. Um, and, and their buddy, and I like to consider him our buddy now as well, Sparks, uh, at Sparks Third Coast on Twitter, posted an old program that had some Jim Meldy photos uh, from the, 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 the Jim Bowie death match and had... Uh, you know, a little backstory to it. And it, it reads, in, in the tradition of our country's bicentennial, a match was arranged that recalled the famous knife fight in a dark room of a century back in New Orleans that started the legend of the man Jim Bowie. Bowie defeated his opponent in the fight under conditions of total darkness. Neither man was able to see his foe. To bring the same conditions to the death match between Killer Carl Cox and Dick Murdoch, both men were blindfolded. They did, however have the advantage of shouted advice from their seconds, Bill Watts for Murdoch and Bruiser Bob Sweetan for Cox, when the crowd allowed them to hear it. Um, now, I haven't been able to find any reference to the knife fight described in this program, but Al, you found an interesting tidbit about Bowie and his men while they were en route to a deserted Spanish fort yeah, along they, the they Santa were looking for, River. They were looking for some Spanish silver and uh, the... Uh, the Indians were the enemy uh, at the time, and they, they, at, at night they sort of, under cover of night, they sort of set things up in the darkness and, and sort of cleared paths and rearranged things in such a way that come light of day they would have an advantage. So I I, I wonder if that uh, was part of how they turned turned this into a Jim Bowie death match, but it's basically the same thing as the um, uh, the Rick Martel Jake Roberts WrestleMania match. And Bill Watts actually got the idea uh, from the AWA, I believe it was the AWA, but it was a uh, it was called an Algerian death match where both men wore not just blindfolds but were hooded. Uh, and so oh, yeah, that's yeah, where yeah. that's where Watts got the idea for this. So those are the top two matches uh, for the Superdome. But to round out the card, they did uh, bring in a couple of outsiders, and that was Dick the Bruiser uh, versus Abdullah the Butcher. And both of them had made appearances in the New Orleans market on uh, the house shows in the weeks leading up to this. Uh, and also Buck Robley, who had been with the heels, ends up turning babyface. Uh, and uh, recruits Andre the Giant as his partner to face Sweetan and Ken Patera. So that uh, that's the top four matches for the Superdome uh, on July 17th, and uh, we'll run through the results, and John, you can start. Sure. I got Funk and Watts go to a double countout. Uh, assuming Watts wins the first fall, and then they go to a double countout. Uh, Murdoch beat Cox in the Jim Bowie death match. Uh, and then from there, Andre and Robley beat Patera and Sweetan. Abdullah and Dick the Bruiser go to a double DQ, so nothing is settled. Uh, and then from the, uh, af before that, we have the Midgets. Uh, Bobo Johnson and Farmer Pete beat Little Tokyo and Billy the Kid. And they're sort of sandwiched in between matches of big men. Uh, it was Abdullah and Bruiser. And before that were the Midgets. And before that was Grizzly Smith defeating uh, Siegfried Stanka. And uh, there on the undercard there, you got Nelson Royal beating Ron Starr, uh, Teddy Biasi, Jay Clayton beating Randy Tyler and Bobby Jaggers. 
and Pat, Irish Pat Barrett beat uh, Tom Jones. And how would how would you describe that victory for Pat Barrett? Well, um, well you know, I, I think it's a reasonable outcome, and and nothing out, you know, nothing on, you know, nothing out of the ordinary. But uh, this is where they're sort of setting up for their uh, junior heavyweight title tournament because Danny Hodge had retired uh, earlier in the year. Uh, and so Nelson Royal, uh, Ron Starr, Pat Barrett, and Tom Jones are, are all participants in the junior heavyweight tournament. And Tom Jones is here so often that, that it, it really is just, you know, an, a, a regular occurrence for Tom yeah. to be here. But the, but the show drew a reported 17,000 fans paying $75,000, which was considered a big success. And as we ran over numbers for uh, some of the other super cards, it really, it's it's not that bad. It holds up against a lot of them. And uh, the other supercards were in much larger territories. You're talking the East Coast, the West Coast, and Chicago, uh, and and also Cleveland. Um, so 17,000 in New Orleans is, is really a surprising number. And then the territory had been on the upswing for about a year or so, which actually coincides with Murdoch and Cox sort of coming in and, and being a part of the main event scene, first as partners, and then with Murdoch eventually turning babyface. But for a point of comparison, their regular weekly venue in the New Orleans market had been the St. Bernard Civic Auditorium in Chalmette, which, as I understand it, it's technically a different city than New Orleans, but to call it New Orleans is not wrong. Um, but that venue seated about 3,500 fans maximum. And occasionally they would move to a bigger venue, which was the Municipal Auditorium in New Orleans. Remember, it wasn't until after uh, Junkyard Dog uh, was on top that they started running the Municipal Auditorium regularly. Prior to that, they were running the smaller venue most weeks and the larger venue for bigger events or when scheduling permitted. So to double, so they, they basically doubled uh, the maximum attendance that they could have gotten in their larger venue. Yeah, and it's like you hear you read or you hear a lot of people criticizing. Well, there's seventeen thousand at the Superdome. That must not have looked like a lot of people in that in that big old building. But what people a lot of people fail to realize is that they use a a partial set of similar like they would use for the basketball games there. Um, you know, so it didn't it didn't look like. Yeah, in, that, in an indoor venue, they probably could have tarped things off, and and, and uh, it would look different than if you try tarping off things in an outdoor uh, yeah. venue, particularly during the daytime. You mentioned Cleveland was run during the day, so uh, again, and and I don't think fans are are thinking of it that way. Uh, I think a fan is just excited to see some wrestling, and and you know, and to be in this large venue, and, and it, it's something new and different and unique, and no one's concerned about counting attendance or what does it, how does it look? Oh, yeah. I, I, was, I was talking about as a as a as a as a current person going back and looking yeah. at looking at figures. That's that's you need to factor in that. And one of also one of the unique things about New Orleans is that unlike a lot of other major cities. Uh, in the U.S. during the 70s and 60s, like there, there's not a major, you know, civic arena with like a, a 15, 20,000 capacity um, to, to 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 fill that need. And in, in, and once the Superdome is project going, there's there's no also no need and no way that's going to happen either. So all these events, whether they're going to draw, you know, 10,000 or 50,000, are going to be in the Superdome. Yeah, that's that's the that's the only choice. Um, yeah. So yeah, so that was the first ever super card at the Superdome, and of course the Superdome becomes part of uh, Mid South wrestling lore uh, in later years. It it uh, gets a lot 
significant higher attendance for future events. Um, but uh, going back to 1976 as a whole, we're going to look at the rest of the, you know, we're going to look at the whole crew. Uh, and uh, you can see on our blog, we have the spot ratings. We'll, we'll look at the main eventers. Obviously, your top baby faces are Bill Watts and Buck Robley. And on the house shows, their spot rating, uh, both of them are consistently above a 0.90. So they are almost always in the main events. And a little bit lower on the cards, but still considered main adventures, are Grizzly Smith and Dick Murdoch. And as we mentioned, Murdoch had been uh, had just come back, recovering from his quote unquote injury. So they're sort of building him up slowly. So he's working his way back up the cards, uh, which explains uh, why his spot rating is a little lower. Actually, at the beginning of the month, it had been a point seven six, and it increases to a point eight nine by the end of the month. So he's right on that threshold of the point nine zero category. And on the heel side, the only heel with a spot rating consistently above a 0.90 for the month was Killer Carl Cox. So he's your top heel. And then uh, also b- below him as main eventers are Ken Patera, Bob Sweetan, and Siegfried Stanka. We talked about Stanka a little bit last month. Uh, we briefly mentioned Patera. This is his first run anywhere as a heel. Um, and clearly he's doing well as he's up in the main events. He's wrestling Watts a lot, uh, as well as Grizzly and some of the other baby faces. Um, a little bit further down the card, we have some of those light heavyweights we talked about. John, you want to talk about uh, the upper mid-carders? Yeah, upper on the baby face side there, we have old Tom Jones again, Nelson Royal, and a young Ted DiBiase. On the heel side, we've got the Rotten Ron Star and uh, the team of Randy Tyler and Bobby Jaggers. Bobby Jaggers, wasn't he one of the uh, millions of uh, wrestlers that went to West Texas State? I think he, I think he was. Yeah. Or, or said he did. Yes, or said he did. So, and uh, Also, here we have DiBiase and Murdoch on that list. And looking at our feud scores, the uh, biggest feud on the house shows uh, and uh, is... Ron Starr uh, and Tom Jones, and their feud score is a 25 or above three out of the four weeks in July. So it's it's a feud. Uh, then you have uh, Buck Robley against Bob Sweetan. Also Buck Robley against Killer Carl Cox, so he's feuding with both those guys, so he's alternating uh, wrestling uh, both of them on the various house shows. And then in the uh, lower Louisiana towns, the uh, where Grizzly Smith has positioned himself as the Bruno Sammartino of Louisiana, uh, his uh, big monster heel of the month is uh, Siegfried Stanka. Uh, and that's the other big feud. But the Star Jones, uh, Ron Star and Tom Jones feud, had uh, some stipulation matches around the horn. John, if you want to run through some of those, yeah, because they, they you know, they, uh, you know, they start off, you know, at Alexandria, uh, North Little Rock, Greenwood, and you know, Greenwood to me is especially, especially interesting. Um, you know, they're, they're building towards no DQ matches in some of these. Uh, Greenwood is, is very interesting because they, they start off on the 10th with a no DQ match and come back the next week with a, a lights out match, which is fantastic. Yeah. And I think that's one of those scenarios I mentioned earlier where they were, they, they were doing the no DQ match in most of the towns on the loop and perhaps in Greenwood that drew really well. So they decided, well, we're going to have to come back again. And what can, what stipulation can we do that tops a no DQ match? Uh, and so they came up with the lights out match. They do uh, Baton Rouge on the 14th. They do a one fall, sudden death, no time limit match. On uh, the 19th in Monroe, they do a uh, elimination tournament match for the, for the title. Ron Starr beats Tom Jones in that one. Uh, originally, they go to a 20-minute draw. 
uh, but they do the the angle where where Jones asks for five more minutes and ends up getting pinned by Star during that time. Hoisted by his own petard. <laughs> uh, he shouldn't have asked for that extra time. It did him in. Yeah, we don't have results for a lot of these, but the ones we do, Star is winning. So they are clearly building Star up, uh, uh, particularly as we get to this junior heavyweight title tournament. Uh, and and the way they did it, they so it wasn't a tournament bracket per se. They just would have matches in each city. And as a wrestler lost, they were out of the running. But each city sort of has its own threads. So Tom Jones might have lost in Monroe, as you mentioned, but he might still be competing in these elimination matches in other towns. And eventually we get to a semifinals and a finals. Um, But looking at the loop at this time, the schedule of house shows that the territory ran, it's really interesting because in the first half of the 70s, there are typically running three shows a night in most towns. And around this time, they sort of scale that back to two towns a night. So looking at the loop on Mondays, they run Tulsa, Oklahoma and Monroe, Louisiana. Tuesdays is Shreveport, Louisiana and Alexandria, Louisiana. Wednesdays is Baton Rouge and typically Jackson, Mississippi, although occasionally instead of Jackson, they run the smaller Mississippi town of Vicksburg. And when they do that, they also run a third show in Fort Smith. So whereas Jackson might have five or six matches, uh, Vicksburg and Fort Smith are smaller towns and they typically have three matches each on on the cards. Uh, Thursdays, they would run the New Orleans market, either Chalmette or the Municipal Auditorium. And they would also run North Little Rock. And up until this point, the third town they had been running was Greenville, Mississippi. And they actually stopped running Greenville for the rest of the year. And I've talked a little bit with Gil Culkin, who was one of the two uh, promoters. He and his father, George, were the local house show promoters in Mississippi for McGurk and Watts, dating back to 1971. And this is sort of the start of some friction between the Culkins and uh, the McGurk-Watts end of the territory in that uh, they stop scheduling a weekly shows in a lot of the Mississippi towns. And, of course, for the Culkins, this is their job, this is their income, this is their livelihood. If they're all of a sudden running less shows, that means there's less money coming in. So I, I think we're looking at the start of the friction between uh, the two sides that is going to lead to a full-on uh, split and lawsuit a little over a year later. Um, Friday nights, they uh, run Lafayette, Louisiana weekly, um, and they also run towns in and around Oklahoma City. They don't seem to be running Oklahoma City, but they're running Lawton, Oklahoma a lot on Fridays, as well as some other towns. Saturdays, they have smaller shows on a weekly basis in Greenwood, Mississippi, and LaRanger, Louisiana, and probably a, a spot town as well. And then Sundays, they have an evening show in Huma, Louisiana, um, and there's possibly a spot town or a day off. Um, remember, at this time, there were still uh, blue laws in a lot of towns in the South uh, that prohibited businesses from opening and, and you know being run on Sundays. So in a lot of these places, they might not have been able to run shows on Sundays, or they had to get special permission if they're going to run a spot town in, you know in a, in a small in a small venue. Um, so yeah, this is sort of, uh, them scaling the number of towns they're running. Uh, and because of this, they're actually having more matches per show. Uh, and, and in, in each of these nights, there's a 
there's a general distinction between the A-Town and the B-Town. Tulsa is the A-Town and Monroe is the B-Town. Shreveport is the A-Town. Alexandria is the B-Town. So they're more and more moving towards that two-town split uh, every night of the week. This is this is uh, quite an improvement over over June here, it looks like, with uh, Murdoch. Well, yeah, I think, I, I think it's, this has been in the works for a year, and I think Bill, the, the, the angle with Watts and Funk was planned all along. It, it sure seems to me that this had been the plan all along, was to build it mm-hmm. to be able to draw well at the Superdome. Um, but I recently have been looking at the, the lineups for this territory in 73 and 74, and it's a noticeable uptick in the uh, talent roster. And from what we've seen them uh, draw at the Superdome, uh, attendance seems to be doing well. I know there are many reports that Murdoch, in particular, after he turned babyface in 75, was drawing very well on the house shows. So much so that that Watts sort of voluntarily took a step back and put his matches lower on the card and let Murdoch have those main events, hmm. uh, which is very unselfish of him, yeah. uh, particularly given that he's a uh, you know, partial owner of the territory and, and yeah. probably, if not the booker, certainly has a hand in a lot of things going on. So uh, a very professional of Watts to let the hot hand, um, you know, do do what they do best. Yeah. Uh, and speaking of hot hands, July 1980 <laughs> is really when we see, you know, we, we uh, start to see the, the fruition of the big angle with JYD. He is still selling the blinding angle from June 9th which we talked about last month. And uh, at some point in the month of July is when he makes that fabled appearance at the New Orleans house show where the fan jumps the rail with a gun uh, uh, on Michael Hayes. I don't know the exact date, but it has to be in the month of July because the, the JYD's in-ring return is August 2nd. And a lot on a lot of the house shows during this month, they are advertising special appearances by JYD. And in a couple of cases where they're, where they're having uh, one night tournaments to fill the vacated uh, Louisiana and Mississippi titles that had been held by dog. They announced that JYD is, is going to present the belt to the winner. So he's already making appearances on the house shows to build up to his return. But in the ring, Buck Robley is teaming with, with a, uh, a cavalcade of uh, faces <laughs> in an attempt to get revenge against those dirty, nasty Freebirds. We've got former NFL star Ernie Holmes. We've got uh, the Candyman Ray Candy. We've got Tony Atlas. And we have Ted DiBiase. So uh, Robley is teaming with various baby faces against the Freebirds. Uh, the Freebirds are the tag team champions. But at this point in time, the Freebird rule is not in effect. That had not been invented yet. So the team in the ring is Gordy and Roberts, and Michael Hayes is serving as their manager. And the, uh, the other big feud continues to be uh, Ken Mantell versus Paul Orndorff. And it begins to become a family feud as well. Uh, Paul's younger brother, Terry, had been around in the territory since March. And in July, Ken's brother, Johnny, comes in as well. Uh, they, so did, they, the, did they have Richard Dawson as a special referee? <laughs> he just kissed everybody a lot. Uh, the uh, the Kenny Paul feud sees uh, two major stipulation matches in the in the bunch of the towns. There's a, a come as you are match, uh, and or a match where Orndorff. I love this angle so much. Uh, Orndorff wears a football helmet, like presumably to offset the the loaded headgear being used by Ken Mantel. I just love the idea of Orndorff in a football helmet. 
Yeah, well, well, Ken had Ken was wearing the headgear because he uh, lost his hair uh, with, with the hair cream that played into the JYD angle, and uh, so he wore that headgear uh, to cover it up. And and I guess they sort of did an angle where he would you know load uh, some sort of foreign object into the headgear. So the way to even things up and to level the playing field for Paul Orndorff is to allow him to wear a football helmet. And of course, he did have a football background, so it makes yep. even more sense. Um, yep. Just you know, pretty simple. And I guess it sounds goofy to fans of today to allow wrestlers to uh, compete in football helmets. I, uh, <laughs> recently, the uh, the owner of a major wrestling company announced on Twitter that wrestlers can't kidnap each other, which, you know, pretty much destroys all, all some of the some of the great angles of the past can never be replicated yeah. if that's the case. But what's interesting is as we look at the spot ratings in, in July 1980, we can clearly see Killer Khan being moved down the cards. He was brought in, uh, did a big angle with DiBiase, has a house show run uh, against DiBiase, who's the North American champion. And I don't know if it just doesn't draw well or what, but when it finishes up, that's pretty much it for Khan. And so they move him down the cards. Uh, His spot rating in June was at the main event level, hovering between a 0.82 and a 0.88. But by the end of July, it's down all the way to a 0.62. Um, so he's back down in the middle portion of the cards. And at the same time, another heel who is relatively new in the territory is climbing up the cards. And that's a, that's one of the things territories did a lot. As one guy's run is finishing up, he is sort of moved down while at the same time someone else has moved up to sort of take their place. And this newcomer is the grappler, Lynn Denton. He debuted in June and his spot rating in June was uh, around a, a 0.47 to a 0.51. But by the end of July, it's, a, it's at a 0.6. So he's already at the upper mid-card level and going to... Uh, get a really big push later on in the year uh, is the grappler Um, and also 1980 we also cover the separate end of the territory and that is Leroy McGurk's tri-state wrestling McGurk and Watts had split in September of 1979 so now McGurk is running Oklahoma and parts of Arkansas and Missouri as tri-state wrestling and what I've done for this it's a it's a very uneventful territory. They've got a small crew. There's not a lot of turnover. And so instead of doing it on a month-by-month basis, I'm actually now doing it uh, three months at a time. So we recently posted a look at the McGurk territory from July, August, and September of 1980. And the roster at the top of the cards, uh, the top heels, uh, top heel is the spoiler. Number two is Skandor Akbar. And number three is Mr. Pogo. And I look at the three of them together, and I think that's a great photo shoot for a United Colors of Benetton ad. <laughs> Our top baby faces, the number four baby face is Brian Blair. Number three is Steve Lawler, who also wrestled as Steve Kyle. Number two is Tommy Gilbert. And the number one baby face, and when I came up with this, I actually double-checked my work. <laughs> and then triple checked it and then went back and looked at all the original advertisements to make sure I wasn't seeing things mm-hmm. because the number one baby face for a portion of the summer of 1980 in the Leroy McGurk yeah. territory is Don Bass. Yeah. Yeah. This is a, this is a real, a real head scratcher. Um, you know, I just, you know, you look at the roster and, and there's nothing, you know, not to knock Blair or Gilbert or, or Steve Lawler. They're all capable wrestlers, but, uh, they're, they don't have the talent that, uh, Watts had at this time. So Bass had been working as a heel and they just shot a big angle where he turns babyface uh, and he feuds with the spoiler and the spoiler is managed by Akbar. So, uh, Akbar sort of a player coach 
at this point in time. Um, so yeah, Bass has a main event run against the spoiler and, and, and then he finishes up. So as, as shocking as it is to see him as a main event level babyface, at least he loses, I think at the end. Uh, yeah. and, and it's done to put over the spoiler and set and, and establish him as the top heel. So, uh, and the rest of the, uh, the roster are looking at the, uh, the, the mid card portion, John. Yeah. The upper, upper mid card, we got Ron McFarlane, uh, Babyface Doug Summers there, uh, Haru Sonada. Excuse me. Oh, these are I'm giving you heels. I'm sorry. Uh, these are the heels. Haru Sonada, Doug Summers, Ron McFarlane. Uh, Babyface is a young Coco Ware. Uh, King Parsons, future Iceman there. Uh, Terry Gibbs comes in uh, well, August, late mid mid late August there, uh, and Ron Sexton. Yeah, and so uh, with this roster, they decide to run a tournament to crown the first heavyweight champion in this new territory, uh, and it happens on Sunday, September 7th. I say new, but uh, by the time of this tournament, they'd been around for just under a year. Uh, in addition to their regular crew, they also bring in Ed Wiskowski from Central States, as well as two bigger outside names, Wahoo McDaniel and Killer Carl Cox. And uh, the full results, uh, the full tournament bracket is available at the great site Wrestling Supercards and Tournaments that Jason Campbell runs. But in one bracket, you have Terry Gibbs beating Ron McFarlane and then Ed Wiskowski and then getting a bye to the finals. The other bracket, Mr. Pogo beats Hector Guerrero, then beats Wahoo McDaniel, and then beats the spoiler. So talk about a, you know, sort of an mm. uneven bracket. Terry Gibbs has a breeze to get to the finals, and Pogo has to beat uh, not only Wahoo, but the spoiler. And the spoiler had just beaten Cox. So Pogo had to mm. face the winner of spoiler versus Cox. So, um, and, and Terry Gibbs, who is relatively new to the territory, but they yeah. give him a big push out the gate. They give him the belt, and he's go we're going to see him move up the cards later on. So you can see a little more about that and see the spot ratings for the entire crew at chartingtheterritories.com. But I want to move on to July of 1972, because, John, we're trying to have a podcast with a strict 90-minute time limit. So I think we've got about 20 minutes left. So okay. we're going to look at 1972. Um, whereas in 1980, we saw the Orndorff brothers and the Mantell brothers, and they were both sets of real brothers. 1972 sees a fake brother combo, a fake cousin combo, a fake brother combo where uh, one of them is the manager and one of them is the wrestler. And if that wasn't enough, we have a fake Bachwinkle. Yeah. So uh, talk about, why don't you start, you talk about the fake cousins. Fake cousins, we've got the Putskis, the old Putski cousins here. Uh, Ivan Putski was joined in his battles against the team of uh, Terry Garvin and Duke Myers by his cousin Igor Putski, who was actually Rick Ferrara, who also worked as Beppo Bonnet, among other names, over the course of his career. He's Ivan's Russian cousin, I believe, right? Uh, I, no, I think he was French. Uh, Putski, of French. course, was uh, was billed as as Polish. Um, and I think Igor was billed as coming from France, but you might be right. Uh, we we will uh, again. We will double check and we will correct ourselves as need be next right. month. It, it's um, incredible to me that this like the the friendly the friendly Polish slash Eastern European strongman gimmick was that popular in 1972 that you at certain points had three or four guys doing versions of it. That's so fascinating to me. Uh, you know, so many of these uh, characters just worked and, and transcended time and place. Um, 
you know, you you look at the Mighty Wilbur gimmick. That was a yeah. one, you know, the the lovable, you know, uh, country boy. Th- these they just worked. Uh, and, and we look at it now and say that would never work today. And you're probably right. But of course, Orange Cassidy would have worked back then. And he does, uh, to some extent, work today. So it's just yeah. it's just a different time, uh, a different place, and different things worked. But So those are the fake cousins. The fake brother combo, uh, when Dale Lewis had been wrestling in Florida the year before, he met a young man at his apartment complex by the name of Gene Pettit. And he actually ended up paying Gene to drive him to the shows. Uh, when uh, Dale came to the McGurk territory, he actually brought Gene with him. And as the story goes, one night at a spot show in Arkansas, a couple of wrestlers no-showed. So Dale gave Gene an extra pair of tights and boots, and Gene had his first ever match without any preparation whatsoever. <laughs> Although he's probably he'd probably been somewhat trained or, or taught a little bit, but they basically threw him in the ring. Uh, it's believed he worked on that show as Gene Pettit. But after that point, he starts working regularly as Gene Lewis and is billed as Dale's younger brother. And the story of uh, a wrestler just giving someone else some tights and boots and saying, all right, you're on first. I have a very similar experience. As uh, some of our oh. listeners know, I worked as a manager uh, for in the independence for many years. And early on in my career, I had been broken in by a wrestler named Casey Thunder in Asheville, North Carolina. And we were uh, supposed to go to a show uh, a little further in, uh, a little further into the state of North Carolina. Uh, we were supposed to go with another wrestler named Iceman, not King Parsons, but Iceman Mike Murphy, who actually worked for the sheriff's department in Buncombe County, North Carolina. He ended up uh, having to, he got called into work, so he couldn't make the show. So it's just Casey and I, and we get to the building. We walk in, and the promoter comes. Casey had worked for him before. This is my first time. Um, and the promoter sees KC, goes over, shakes his hand, points at me and goes to KC, is this Iceman? And before I can say anything, KC says, yes, yes, he is. So next thing you know, they're giving me tights and boots and I'm working the second match on the show. And I am barely, barely trained as a manager. I knew how to bump and I knew some of the most basic heel interference spots and that's it. And so I tell the poor guy that is uh, stuck in the ring with me that I have no idea what the fuck I'm doing. And we put together the most simple, basic match. Thank God I've never seen video of it because I'm sure it was horrible. Because on top of me not being able to do anything, I normally wear glasses and I am blind as a bat without them. So to thrust me into the ring, not knowing what I'm doing, inexperienced, nervous, and blind... Uh, I'm sure we had a a really bad go of it. But yeah, sometimes that's how wrestlers get their breaks is when uh, the guy who trained you plays a practical joke on you and forces you to get in the ring. Uh You're like Stan Hansen in there. Yeah, so exactly. So yeah, so that's that's probably the only thing that Gene Pettit, a.k.a. Cousin Luke, and I have in common. (laughs) Um, But now back to the fake Bachwinkle. This is a oh, wrestler, yeah. and in some of the early ads in the territory, they actually list him as Nick Bockwinkle. There's no way it's Nick. Nick is, um, I believe he's in Florida at the time, teaming with Stevens. And Nick was a made, uh, was enough of a name at this point that they would not have brought him in to work prelims for a, a few weeks. So I think the first run of ads were, were just a mistake, but eventually uh, it's listed as Dennis Bockwinkle, and it appears to have been a preliminary wrestler in the AWA named Dennis O'Brien. Don't know if he had permission from Nick or not, but John, (laughs) you stumbled across a magazine article talking about 
Dennis. Yeah, because because of my photographic memory, just when it comes to the 70s wrestling magazines, I, I remembered this about this article from the June 1974 issue of, of The Wrestler. And I'm not going to read the whole article due to the time. I'll just give you the gist. Like it's a three-page article with the headline, Dennis Bockwinkle has to live down his brother's reputation. Uh, Dennis Bockwinkle has been judged guilty without having done anything wrong and without having been given a trial. It's guilt by association. His crime, carrying the name Bockwinkle. So that's the gist of the article. Bockwinkle bad, little brother Dennis, so far so good. Will the fans be on his side? Will he stay a good guy? Uh, and at the end of the article, they actually have an interview with flying Fred Curry, son of Wild Bill Curry. And he's just like, I don't know, man, kid's going to have it rough. <laughs> kid's going to have it and, rough. And, you know, <laughs> I've read rumors that Bockwinkle was Austin Idol. Um, and I, I guess maybe there's a very vague physical resemblance. And Dennis, maybe Idol's real first name, I'm not sure. But this can't be him. Because Idol is in Mid-Atlantic during this time, and, and, and the photos show the mysterious Dennis Bockwinkle wrestling Carl Von Steger, which would have to have been in Amarillo in 1972. So it's just this weird and, I guess, typical wrestling magazine thing to do. Like, hey, we have three pages to fill, and well, let's concoct a story around these Dennis Bockwinkle photos yeah, from so, yeah, we're two or three years about, ago. Yeah, Bockwinkle was in, worked under that name in 1972. But And John, as you said, the magazine was from 1974. Yeah. So, and, and so weird. Uh, what's interesting is I just recently stumbled upon something similar. I found an article about uh, Pat Patterson, uh, and it was in a 1968 magazine, but the pictures and the uh, people and the places and people he's re referred to as wrestling in the article are from 1964 when he was in uh, East Texas. So, oh, wow. I, 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 you know, I guess this was just something they did was they had these photos and articles and uh, if they needed to run them, uh, you know, years after the fact, I guess they just did it. So uh, that that's really startling to me, but uh, it happened more than once, and we we actually verified that. So I guess that was just a thing mm. that they did. Mm. I would love to be able to ask Idol about this, but I don't even know if he'd get a, a straight answer from Idol knowing him. He's, he's no, I mean, it, it, can't, it can't be him. So, I, you know, and, that, yeah. and that's one of the other things that, I, you know, we do with this research is we take these, well, I heard this was so-and-so. We can mm. actually look at the time frame, then we can absolutely rule him out. Um, yeah. and, and so it's, it's, it's like detective work. It's like forensics work. Yeah. Um, and, and so we covered our three main time periods. And as we wrap up very briefly, going to touch on 1961, but we're actually going to go into more detail next month about 1961. But what we do, uh, with the sixties is, um, we do it in three-month chunks. So on our blog at chartingtheterritories.com, you can look at the uh, spot ratings and the feud scores as well as the uh, all the advertised lineups for the house shows for the third quarter of 1961. And the third quarter is when the territory expands into Louisiana for the first time. They start running events in Shreveport, Monroe, Baton Rouge, and New Orleans. And these are in addition to their their existing schedule. So they're actually bringing in a lot of new faces. Um, we see the Scufflin' Hillbillies, Chuck Conley and Rip Collins. We see the fabulous Fargo Brothers, which here are Donnie 
Don Fargo, and Ronnie Fargo, who is Jim Boggus, a.k.a. Jim Dalton. We also see Korska Joe, Sputnik Monroe, and a couple of special attractions who came in for several weeks, the great Antonio and Happy Humphrey. And so next month, when we focus on 1961, we're going to talk more about these two, but in particular, great Antonio, because he is one of the most fascinating characters uh, and his his real life story is absolutely incredible, and it's and it's a shame that most wrestling fans only know him for that match with Antonio Inoki. Much later in Antonio's career, where he uh, where Inoki basically shoots on him uh, after Antonio is not cooperating. But since we're running out of time this month, we're going to uh, focus on that next month on the Charting the Territories podcast. And if you haven't already subscribed uh, at uh, iTunes or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. That's the best way of uh, being first person on the block to know when new episodes come out. So subscribe to us today. You can also go to chartingthepodcast.com and you can subscribe to the RSS feed. So again, you can know when new things come out. The last thing we're going to do this month is go to the mailbag, although we don't have any mail this month. But we do have some corrections and addendum to talk about. So last month, John, when we were talking about the DiBiase flair angle, you had asked if that was flair's first time in Mid-South. And I actually did some research and he worked some shows for Watts in 84 and early 85. So it wasn't his first time there. But, you know, remember, Watts was never an NWA member. So the world champ coming in was not a regular thing in the Mid-South years. Um, We also, you had asked uh, about some of the uh, shows in these smaller Louisiana towns having wacky gimmick matches. And I I think a lot of it is due to uh, Louisiana having previously been a Gulf Coast state. Um, And Gulf Coast, uh, much like Memphis, was known for having these gimmick matches uh, week in and week out. So I think it's a holdover for that. Uh, And a a lot of these towns in Louisiana each had their own local promoter. Uh, I know in Baton Rouge, it was uh, Mrs. Jimmy Kilshaw was always listed as the (laughs) promoter. In Alexandria, I forget the name, but uh, it was Sputnik Monroe's ex-wife was actually the local promoter. Um, Mm -hmm. But so one of the things I've always wondered is is how much say a local promoter has on what they can do at the shows. Or if it's just a matter of Leroy slash Watts says, here's the show you're going to run and and go ahead and advertise it. Um, Mm -hmm. I do know one local promoter in particular in the Amarillo territory seemed to have a lot of stroke when it came to putting together matches on his towns. And that was the lawman Don Slatton in Uh Abilene. And the Abilene shows not only always had crazy gimmick matches like brass knucks bouts or, you know, I quit matches or first blood matches, but the lawman himself always pushed himself much harder uh, uh, on the uh, top of the cards in Abilene than he was usually positioned in the rest of the territory. So I think it's just a matter of Don Slatton, and he was called the lawman because he had been a, a former law enforcement officer. And I don't have all the details, but uh, he was basically forced to resign after some sort of incident. <laughs> um, so of course he got into wrestling but i i think it's just a matter of the <laughs> local promoter in abilene having some stroke and i think that was the case here was that the local promoters told leroy and or bill that you know their fans are used to having these gimmick matches um so can we keep doing them so that's what they did um we also uh talked about how a lot of fans think the uh blinding angle 
1980 with Junkyard Dog was at the Superdome, but it was actually at Municipal Auditorium. And I think the genesis for that comes from a, a TV interview that JYD did in Georgia in 1981, mm-hmm. um, where he's referring to his past with the Freebirds. And I believe in this interview, he actually states that that the angle, the blinding angle happened in the Superdome. So that's where the uh, confusion might be. And then the final uh, correction or addendum is that as we were going through the talent roster in 1961, uh, we talked about Bruiser Collins, and that is the man later known and more famously known as Ripper Collins, who was a mainstay mm-hmm. in Hawaii and also a little bit yeah. on the West Coast. Yeah, he's a very interesting guy, uh, Ripper. He did the he started, you know, he did the some territories. He does like these sort of effeminate, gorgeous George type gimmick, the valet. Uh, in other territories, he's more like a traditional brute type guy when he's teaming with crazy Luke Grammer in L.A. Uh, I mean, he had huge in Hawaii on the strength of his promos because you could do a 10 minute promo in Hawaii. Uh, and he'd really play up, you know, he's from the South, so he'd play up the accent, like, I'm looking forward to seeing all you nice fans in Maui. You know, he'd really play it up. Uh, an interesting fact, I was reading uh, the, the Ed Francis Hawaii book, and they talk about uh, Ripper being in trouble with the IRS and Ed Francis having to help Ripper out with some extra cash, um, but also that the agents were wrestling fans, so they were able to, to work out the debt with, shall we say, a barter system, which is a, I think we're beyond the statute of limitations on that. Yeah. And then much later in his career, Collins actually comes back to this neck of the woods and he works for the Culkins uh, in their territory in Mississippi, where he's billed as Pretty Boy Collins. And then from there, he actually works for Goulas um, at at the period after Goulas had split with Jarrett. Um, so he was working those outlaw promotions in the South, uh, at the tail end of his career. But we'll talk more about the talent roster in 1961 next month on charting the territories. Uh, we're going to talk about the Louisiana expansion and how it didn't last all that long. We'll take a look at the roster among the names we'll talk about is Danny Hodge, a Sputnik, a Von Eric, a couple of Yankees, two Bolos, and not one, but two wrestling animals of course one of them is a bear uh and the other one you'll just have to tune in next month to the charting the territories podcast to find out what type of creature it is Um, but uh yeah that that's it for this month's podcast episode number two and i gotta say i think this is one of the two best ones we've done so far john I, I would have to agree with you there. I, well, that's great. It's, it's unanimous. So um, <laughs> thank you for listening. And again, any questions or comments, my Twitter handle is at Al Getz Wrestling. That's at Al G-E-T-Z Wrestling. John? I am at uh, John Boucher. It's uh, J-O-N underscore B-O-U-C-H-E-R. Keep an eye out for future episodes. Thanks for listening. And uh, we will see you all next month here at Charting the Territories, which is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Check us out at chartingthepodcast.com and check out the blog at chartingtheterritories.com. John, thanks a lot, and we will see you next month. See you next month.